I'm going to be reading from the NIV, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. <clears throat> Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a, a place in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Sorry. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Morning, church. At different times in my life, I've often imagined myself in different situations where I'd become famous. Perhaps I'd become a famous sports star, politician, even the president, dating a celebrity. Right? There's always something in imagi my imagination where I can see myself accomplishing something or doing something that sets me up as higher or more exceptional than other people and draws their attention towards me. Even people who are shyer among us, who maybe don't have any of those desires, want to stand out in the, among their close circle of family and friends. And for there to be something about them that makes them stand out and surpass others. The question is not whether or not we as human beings desire fame and praise from others. We do. The question is how do we respond to that desire that's within all of us? And this morning as we go through the story of the Tower of Babel, there's going to be two paths that are set before us. And we must choose how we respond and which path we're going to go down. Now as we arrive this morning at the Tower of Babel, we're coming to the end, close to the end of, our, of the beginning of Genesis, these stories that share the story of the entire earth and humanity. And as we've been following along, we've seen that it's a tragic story, right? It's not a trajectory upward, it's a trajectory downward as God first creates human beings in his image, gives them everything they need, they rebel and sin against him and fall, and then they successively fall again after God gives them more mercy and fall again after God gives them most, more mercy. And this morning at the Tower of Babel, we're going to see the final and climatic fall of the human race that results in the scatteredness and brokenness of the world that we inhabit today. If you want to understand the world you live in, the distance there is from God, the distance there is from one another, that's what the story is here for, right? This is answering the question, how did things get so broken and how did they end up the way that they did? 
This story comes after our sermon last week that Daniel preached on the genealogy of nations. There was this list of 70 different nations, all different kinds of nations, and their brokenness and their dispersion from one another. There's a list of the fractured nations of the world that Moses shared so that the nations would be on the minds of his people. And this morning, we get to hear the story of how those nations got there. So let's hop into our story now and see how the world became so broken, how the world became so scattered, and how human beings became so distant from God. We read in verse 1, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So we're picking up the story after the flood and Noah's failure and his son Ham's failure. Everyone at this time has one language, one culture, one unity in the world, right? This would be a tremendous asset to be able to talk to and understand everyone else, to not have cultural differences that make it difficult to understand other people. This is a tremendous opportunity they have. And if you remember, after the flood, God had given the command to Noah and his descendants to go and fill the earth with his image, fill the earth with his glory. They had a big job ahead of them, and their unity with one another is a tremendous asset. Right? So as we read this story, we're going to ask, how do they use this unity? How do they use this opportunity that God had given them? Verse 2 says, As they moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So it says that these people are on a journey together. They're migrating east. So ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since human beings fell and were separated from God and his life-giving presence, they've been on a journey. They're looking for a place where there's life. They're looking for a place where there's abundance. They're looking for the same kind of blessing in life that they used to have before the fall. They're on a journey. And it says... And this is where we, I want us to pause and notice something, that they're moving eastward. They're moving eastward. And that might sound like an insignificant detail. But if we pay attention to the stories that came before, when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, it says he sent them to the east. And since then in the story, moving east is symbolic of being on a journey not towards God and closer to God, but moving on a journey further away from God and further away from his purposes. If you remember another example, after Cain kills his brother Abel, he also goes and settles east of Eden. So people moving eastward is a clue for us that this journey is not a righteous journey towards God and towards his purposes. Rather, it's a journey further from God and further from his presence and further from his purposes. And we'll see that more as the story unfolds, that this is not good, what's happening here. It says that they find a plain in Shinar. So if you remember, God told Noah, his descendants are supposed to go and spread out and fill the whole world with his glory. They say, no, God. We have a better plan. It seems good to us to build a city here on this plain. Rather than go and fill and spread, we're going to settle. We're going to do what seems right to us in order to create a place of a life and abundance from what we lost. We don't need your plan, God. We don't need your directives, God. We got this. We're going to settle here in Shinar. 
And then it says in verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So to turn this plain into a city, into a habitable place, they start to use construction materials. And it says they don't have access to stone. It says they don't have access to mortar. But these people are very intelligent and they have gifts and they're able to make brick out of mud and they're able to make tar that makes the bricks stick together and they're able to start building a city and constructing things and putting them together. The point, and I hope you're hearing this point, is that God gave them incredible gifts, God gave them incredible potential, just like he gave every single human being in this room and he's ever made incredible gifts and potential, like God's given you gifts and potential wildly beyond what any of us deserve. And the question is, how will they use it? How will they use it? So verse 4 leads us how they use this potential that they had received from God. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So at this point, their motivations become clearer than ever. There's a, it's connecting with the pattern that came earlier. Cain, after killing Abel, moves east and builds a city that opposes God. These people also move east and build a city that opposes God. And then we see in the next verse how clear it is that they're opposing God. It says, let us build a tower that reaches into the heavens. Let us build a tower that reaches into the heavens. When Adam and Eve fell, what was the greatest thing they lost? They lost access to the presence of God. Right when they were in Eden, they had the presence of God available to them, which means that they had heaven on earth. And all the abundance that they enjoyed in the garden was an evidence that they had heaven on earth. And what these builders of Babel are striving after is to bring heaven back to earth. But notice, they want to do it on their own terms without any help from the Lord. The confidence is in themselves that if we come together and use our gifts and abilities, we can fix the problems here. We can fix our lives. We can fix this world all on our own without you, God. Thank you very much. This tower symbolizes human pride. My pride and your pride. And at the heart of pride is the belief that we can make life and abundance for ourselves without God. I'm going to say that again. The heart of pride is that we believe we can create life and abundance for ourselves without God. Every time we sin, that's exactly what's happening. Right? I believe that I can come up with a way to bring happiness to bring fame, to bring pleasure to myself, and I don't need to do it God's way because I'm wiser than him, and I'm smarter than him, and I can do it myself. 
right? The tower symbolizes what they're longing for. They're longing for permanence. They're longing for transcendence. They're longing for reputation and renown. These are all things that all of us are thirsting for. For other people to see us as exceptional. And human pride tries to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts without any surrender to God. So human pride does. It tries to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts without any surrender to God. We all have deep longings in our hearts. We're all going to try to fulfill them. Are we going to try to fulfill them with the Lord or with something else? And when you're proud, you try to go to somewhere else to find some way to fulfill the deep longings that's within your heart. Now, what this text makes clear is that this building project is a direct assault against God's and his glory. This building project, this city, is war against heaven. They are trying to displace God and replace themselves as the center of their own lives and the centers of their universe. This is not just something apart from God. This is not just something separate from God. This is something opposed to God and opposed to heaven, right? Because it says that we may make a name for ourselves. We may make a name for ourselves. When you read the Bible, it becomes clear that there's only one person who's worthy of having a name and a reputation above everyone else. And it's not me and it's not you. It's the Lord. And instead of giving him the reputation and the renown and the honor that they're due, they're seeking it themselves. This is a city of glory thieves. A city of glory thieves who are trying to appropriate for themselves what only rightfully belongs to God, lasting reputation and honor and love and praise from others. And then we see again from this verse that this is opposition against God. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Again, they had a command, to, a commission to fill the world with God's image and glory, and they're saying, we're resisting that God because we have a better way for life and abundance for ourselves. We oppose you. This is a historical city, and it's telling the story of a historical city. But it's not just this city, and it's not just these people. It's also every city and every people in this fallen age. We live in our beloved city here of South Minneapolis and other surrounding areas, and I love living here. But we live in a fallen age with fallen people. Friends, we live in another example and another iteration of Babel. And the influences of our city are upon us for us to live the exact same way as those of Babel. Our city lives this way and pressures us to live this way. Our culture lives this way and pressures us to live this way. And the question is, are you tempted this morning to take the path of Babel and to try to build a name for yourself? Are you trying to build a name for yourself this morning in your life? And I want to ask us a series of questions just so we can ponder Am I like these people who are trying to steal God's reputation, trying to steal God's name for myself? Question. Do you strive for advancement at your career more than you strive to love Jesus and your family? 
Do you daydream about what life would be like if you had more money and success? Do status symbols such as fancy cars, clothing, homes, and trips entice you? Do you use social media to promote your image and reputation? Do you serve in your church community to receive recognition from others or to make much of Jesus? These are all individual ways, right? We can try to make a name for ourselves. There's also collective ways that we can come together with our tribe and try to make a name for our group. And one that comes to mind prominently today is politics. Are you so committed to a political ideology or movement that your emotions rise and fall based off of whether or not your side wins or loses? Does your political ideology govern your emotional life? Friends, I see myself in every one of these. Every one of those questions I asked you are a reflection of me. I'm not a man who naturally wants to make much of God. I'm a man who wants to naturally make much of Ross. And until we're honest that we are all in that same boat together, we're not going to be able to wage war against our pride. It's going to be secretly killing us and keeping us further from the Lord. Do you know that when you were born, you were born with the Babel heart, like myself? That this is the natural path that our hearts go apart from the help of God. I think one indication that we have a Babel heart is that when we are not content, when we are not content to live mostly in obscurity, if only we could serve Jesus. Obscurity means that not many people know about you or recognize you as exceptional or great. One reason we know that we have a Babel heart is because we struggle to live in relative obscurity if only we can serve Jesus and be with him. I struggle with that. So many people struggle with that, which shows that the Babel heart is with us. Now, the next verse is going to show us the tragic consequence of living on this path, of living in this way. So let's keep moving through our story. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower people were building. Now, we should be mindful of this, that human pride grabs God's attention, right? You see that? Human pride grabs God's attention. If we're being prideful, God will notice. And it says he comes down to visit that city. Now, the fact that he comes down communicates a lot to us. What is the first thing it communicates? The fact that he came down to the city indicates that God's presence, his revealed and felt presence, is not in this city. Right? If he has to go down to the city, the city is absent of God. What does that tell us? That tells us that no achievement, no matter how great, matters if it's not done for God because it will take you further away from him rather than further towards him. They put all their effort, all their energy, all their ingenuity into building the city, and God was not there. 
right? You can accomplish all your dreams. You can do everything you set out to do in your life. You can become famous and rich and powerful and have nothing like these people who built this tower and God wasn't even there. God is not present in Babel. Therefore, the way of Babel is not worth anything. What does Jesus say? What do you gain if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Right? There's nothing in There's nothing there for you in Babel at the end of life. When all your dreams vanish, when you die, if there's not God there. What else does it imply that God came down from the city? It implies that the tower never reached heaven, doesn't it? Like if the tower got up to heaven, God wouldn't have to come down to the tower. They failed. Babel is a failed attempt to get to heaven. And the judgment and the wrath of God that's about to come on them is previewed in this depiction right here that they failed to achieve their goal. And verse 6 says this. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. God determines to divide and disperse this rebellious people by confusing their language so that they split up into other cultures and other regions because they can't understand each other any longer. One reason he does this is because he says, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I read this, that part of God's heart in splitting up Babel and stopping this building project is mercy. It's mercy that God does this. If they're able to continue completing this city and completing this tower, it's going to be a monument to pride that continues to lead future generations away from God. That God frustrates and foils this attempt is a mercy to future generations and other people by not allowing this lie to stand. Which really reframes how we think about our hardships and the ways that we're frustrated in this life. Perhaps God's being merciful to you by not giving you what you want. Perhaps God's being merciful to you by humbling you. If God gave you the thing you're praying for that he hasn't given you yet, maybe you'd become just as proud as these people and try to make a name for yourself. Suffering and weakness in our life is one way that God draws us to himself. So I invite you this morning, if you're angry at God and you're running away from him, perhaps instead thank him for what he's kept you from and trust him to run the world and run your life. When God humbles us, I'm going to say this again, when God humbles us, it's never pleasant, but it's always merciful. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The Lord confuses their language and scatters them. Right? They tried to gather to build a city. That was their purpose. God's purpose is that he was going to scatter them, and the Lord effortlessly brings their project to an end and sends them packing everywhere. Scatter can describe what happens when an army is defeated and it breaks formation and runs for the hills. 
right? There was a war against heaven, and the people of Babel lost, and they were scattered as a defeated army because the Lord was victorious over them, just as he's always victorious over all the prideful. It says that they stopped building the city. It would have stood as a half-completed ruin, a mockery of their attempts to go to heaven. That would have been a reminder of the failed road of human pride. Verse 9, that is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. So the city's name is confusion, right? They build a city, it ends up getting the name confusion. They set out to make a name for themselves. All they ended up making was a city called confusion, right? This is a taunt. This went really poorly, just as through all my attempts to make a name for myself at the end. And then it says, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So our passage ends on a sorrowful note, right? This story is bringing us to a sad place. This is not people spreading out over the world to fill God's world with his image and glory like God intended. This is people defeated and opposed to the Lord, being judged and sent out into different places. So far, human sin has ruined peace and closeness with God in the story. And now we see another effect of human sin. It's ruined peace and closeness with each other. The human race at this point in the story is divided from God and divided from one another, right? The beautiful earth that God had made is a ruin of itself because of human pride. Church, this story is a reminder to us this morning, is a siren to us this morning, that nothing is more dangerous than our pride. Nothing's more deadly than our pride. Because nothing like pride sets us at odds with God. The most often quoted proverb in the New Testament is the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If pride puts you at odds with the source of life, pride is deadly. If pride puts you at odds with the source of life, our pride is literally killing us, separating us from him, both in this life so that we pursue destructive lifestyles and then forever if we're not made right from him. The only thing that can kill you forever is your pride. Nothing else can. Nothing outside of you can ultimately harm you and take you away from God forever. Only my pride can and only your pride can. Therefore, this thing above all other enemies, we should be aware of, should we not? We should be vigilant against, should we not? We should despise more than anything our own desire to rise above others and to rise above God and be the center of the world. This situation is the situation from which God calls Abraham in the next story. This complete scattering. And and God sends Abraham on a journey. And I find it really interesting that Abraham, for the first time in the story, journeys west rather than east. Right? We said at the beginning of the sermon, eastward is a direction in the story that indicates being further and further from God. God tells Abraham to go into the land I will show you. And that land happens to be west. Abraham starts journeying west. And then God says, and I will make your name great. So we see 
in the very next story of the Bible, when God starts to act and intervene in the world, is that he begins to undo the curse of Babel, just as he begins to do under the curse and fall of everything that happens in this story and starts to repair and put this broken world back together. Isn't that good news? And as we advance through the story, we get to Abraham's ultimate offspring, Jesus of Nazareth. And in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus scatters our ultimate enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And then what does he do? He ascends to heaven... The very place those building the Tower of Babel tried to go and couldn't get, Jesus is victorious and ends up there because he depended on God rather than oppose God. And as he successfully ascends and rules from heaven, there's a story in Acts 2 that actually relates back to Babel. There's a story in Acts 2 that actually relates back to Babel and shows the Lord Jesus undoing the pain and misery and curse of Babel. It's when he pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In this story, it says that Jewish people from every nation on earth, that's the term it used, every nation is gathered together in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit falls on them, it says they start speaking in different tongues. Right? And instead of confusion, everyone can hear the word of Jesus in his own language. And then the people are bewildered that they can hear it in their own language, and it says that they come together, and thousands of them get saved. Through his people, through the apostles in the early church, Jesus begins a project of regathering the scattered nations together under his life and rule. That's what this church is about. That's what we're a part of right now. We're a part of this story of Jesus regathering the scattered nations around his life-giving presence and rule. It feels like it's a pretty ordinary place to be with some pretty ordinary people. But friends, it couldn't be more amazing than what God is doing here right now this morning as he takes people like myself and gathers me and you around Jesus to receive life and blessing as we humble ourselves under him. In the story of Jesus where Jesus dies for our sin and rises from the dead, God humbles prideful sinners and gives them life. Right? For the first time, unlike in Babel where sinners are trying to do it themselves, Jesus does it for us, and by depending on him, we get the life we could never get on our own. The gospel of Jesus Christ humbles sinners and gives them life like nothing else. At Babel, God slammed the doors of heaven shut to the proud. In Jesus, he throws the doors of heaven open to any who come to him. I'm going to say that again. At Babel, God slammed the doors of heaven shut to the proud. In Jesus, he throws the doors of heaven open to any who come to him. I just want to invite you to come to Jesus afresh this morning. You come to him before, he wants you to come to him every day as a humble, dependent person. You never come to Jesus before and you lived in pride as if you didn't need him. I want to invite you to come to him today. Don't leave without him humbling you and giving you life. Do you want to live for something bigger than yourself that lasts forever and that will bring heaven to earth? And ask that again. 
Do you want to live for something bigger than yourself that lasts forever and that will bring heaven to earth? Then live for the glory of Jesus Christ reigning over all the nations. The way we fight pride is not just to stop living for our own name. The way we fight pride is to start living for a name that's higher than our name. You need something bigger and better than yourself if you're not going to be prideful. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus frees us from our pride by being the one who is worthy of all our worship. It wasn't wrong that the people of Babel wanted permanence, transcendence, and a name. What was wrong was the way they went about it without worshiping and making much of Jesus Christ. Wanting permanence, wanting transcendence, wanting to be a part of something great and that lasts forever is good, as long as it's surrendered to the feet of Jesus and all about him rather than all about you. That's how you bring life to yourself and other people. That's how you live for something that's going to matter forever rather than the fleeting things of this life that will end the moment you do. If our community gave ourselves to this work, of making a name for Jesus rather than self, God will use this church to overcome the gates of hell and rescue people everywhere. Our vision as a church is to have a vibrant community that loves Jesus and that begins and starts other church gatherings. Like if we really are humble and we align ourselves with the heart of God and are about making much of him rather than ourselves, I believe we'll see that come to pass. We'll see sinners in our city saved. We'll see the culture change. But if we continue to live for ourselves or live for ourselves in ways that dishonor him, we bring division in our community as we prefer ourselves and our preferences over other. Nothing stops the work of God in the church like division and nothing caused division in the church like pride. All people's church will become the church it's dreaming of, God helping us, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and he exalts us in his timing. So I invite you this morning to humble yourself with me. The main burden I have for us this morning, the main point I have for us this morning is that we must give ourselves to the only work that will matter forever, making Jesus' name great among the nations. We must give ourselves to the only work that will matter forever, which is making Jesus' name great among the nations. Let's pray together. Father, I'm such a prideful man, and it's brought me more harm than anything else in my life. And I pray that you'd humble me right now, and you'd humble us, and you'd want to make, want, make us want to make a name for Jesus more than anything else, so we can be the joyful people you want us to be, the life-giving, life-filled people you want us to be, God, please, please lift Jesus' name high through us. May ourselves be nothing to us, and you be everything, God. Please help us to be a humble, spirit-filled community, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Just invite you to reflect for the next few moments. What's at least one area that you're trying to make a name for yourself rather than for Jesus? And how can you change your heart and your actions so that you're trying to make a name for Jesus instead?